Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear for the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your God. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in, subject, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God. Attending, attending to this very thing, pray to, pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. This is the word of the Lord. I intend to give a very <clears throat> straightforward exposition of this text. I understand that to be the goal of preaching, to proclaim and explain and apply God's word for a particular people, a particular people in a particular place at a particular time. So because we are in America, this text is going to land on us in a unique way. Because we are Protestants, this text is going to land on us in a unique way. And because we have survived 2020 and following, this text is going to land on us in a certain way. There are many difficult concepts to engage with in the book of Romans. God's sovereignty, human responsibility, the role of Israel in, in the future. But for some of us, this passage is going to be more inflammatory than any of that. You should know that my goal is to apply the same rules of interpretation to this text as I would to any other passage of Scripture. There is a tendency when we read a passage that lands on us and makes us feel uncomfortable to run away from that passage and try to find other passages that sort of ease that discomfort. We look for something that lets us off the hook. For example, we might read a straightforward statement that says God hates divorce, and then the first thing that pops to our mind is, well, yeah, but. And you look for exceptions. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor. Well, I mean, yeah, right, that's generally true, but. Or, so then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. It's like, well, okay, but what about this? So just be aware that there is a tendency to do that, as we submit to God's word this morning. A text like Romans 13, one through seven, could die the death of a thousand qualifications. We could leave here this morning well pleased to have all of our instincts and preferences that we experienced throughout the week just reaffirmed. I just don't think that's what preaching is meant to accomplish. Romans 12 tells us not to be conformed to this world but to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. And I don't know of anything more nonconformist about Christianity than the idea of submitting to institutional authority. 
I don't know of anything more nonconformist about Christianity than the idea of submitting to institutional authority. It would be a lot more enticing to have our ears scratched this morning with a message of cynicism and suspicion towards governing authorities, but here we are. To live as Christians in Christ's reality, in light of the gospel, we are enjoined, exhorted, commanded to extend trust to God and to those made in God's image who have authority over us. I know some of us wish the big idea for this sermon could just be LOL, just kidding. (laughs) But before we rush to justify rebellion and resistance to civil powers, let's establish a posture of humility towards God and his word. The big idea for this morning's sermon is this. Christians submit to God by submitting to governing authorities. Christians submit to God by submitting to governing authorities. We'll look through this in three different points. First, submit and do not revolt. All authority comes from God. That's it, verses one and two. Second, do good and not bad. Governing authorities promote good and punish bad. Verses three and five, three, four and five. Third, support and honor governing authorities. They are God's ministers. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us this morning by your Holy Spirit to submit ourselves to you, to your word. Would you help us to have our minds transformed? May we leave here challenged and changed for the good, for the sake of your glory and for the good of others. We'll pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. First, submit and do not revolt. All authority comes from God. Verses one and two, let me just read that again. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Now, verse 2 makes it plain. To resist governing authorities is to resist God. How could that be? Well, God is the source of all authority, it tells us. We might say that God is the efficient cause of government. He stands behind government's authority, every government's authority. So Christians do not inherently view authority as evil. In Genesis 1, God creates Adam and Eve, gives them that dominion mandate. He says, rule over the earth. This is, in part, governing authority. We're meant to, before the fall, have governing authority over creation. It's not just a necessary evil, okay? This is before the fall, before Genesis 3. Governing authority exists, ruling exists. It's a way of obeying God's command, that dominion mandate that he gave to humanity at creation. A society without governing authority is an expression of anarchy, 
That's literally what anarchy means, no ruler. You know the darkest period of redemptive history is recorded for us in the book of Judges. The repeated phrase in that book is, quote, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And if you've read the book of Judges, you know that that was as close to hell on earth as possible. Governing authority is meant to support life, flourishing, and the common good. King David talks about this when he says, one who rules justly over men is like the rain that makes grass sprout from the earth. That's what good authority looks like, and that's what good authority does. It brings flourishing. We are supposed to bring order to the world, and that's what authority does. It brings order and harmony, where anarchy brings disorder and chaos. That's why the command in Romans 13 is clearly repeated elsewhere. It's not just here in Romans 13. 1 Peter 2, 13 through 17, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Or in Titus 3.1, where Paul says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. So this is a clear admonition repeated throughout Scripture. Let every person, every soul, be subject, submit to governing authorities. And then he explains why. Verse 1, he says, those authorities only have authority because God arranged for them to have it. Authorities that exist have been instituted or appointed by God. And Paul writes it in two different ways there, so there is no confusion, both negatively and positively. No authority exists except from God. If it exists, it's because God instituted it. He even calls them his servants and ministers in verses 4 and 6. That's kind of shocking to read at first, but it's a consistent theme throughout Scripture that God providentially governs the governments of man. As Kevin read for us in Daniel 2, God removes kings and sets up kings. And we've read before in Romans 9 that God raised up Pharaoh for his own purposes. Or the prophet Isaiah in chapter 45, he writes about how God would raise up this Persian king named Cyrus in order to free Israel from their captivity to Babylon. This pagan king, God called him his Messiah, his anointed one, literally, used for his purpose as his servant. A pagan king was God's servant to bring vengeance to Babylon and freedom to Israel. Jesus himself acknowledges this, the same thing in John chapter 19, verse 11. Jesus answered him, this is at his arrest, 
you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. God providentially governs the governments of mankind. Just like any other doctrine, as we're trying to figure out what is our theology of government, it has to relate to the doctrine of God. What do we know about God? Well, we know that he is the sovereign ruler of all things. There is no authority that is higher than he. We sang about it a lot this morning. And in our statement of faith here at Trinity, we confess that God's purposes are always accomplished. Therefore, to resist the governing authorities is to resist God. And if you resist, you will incur, that is, uh, provoke judgment. And verse 4 tells us that that, that judgment, that judgment is an extension of God's wrath. You see this in verse 4. So, why do you think Christians are, are commanded to do this? Why do you think Christians are commanded to submit and not rebel to governing authorities? We think about it just here within this passage uh, and the, the circumstance that Paul was writing in. We know that Israel expected a Messiah who would come to end Israel's political oppression to the nation of Rome. He was going to restore the throne of King David. And so that's what they expected Jesus was going to do, bring about a political revolution. Just before Jesus' ascension to heaven in Acts chapter 1, the disciples asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Even after his death, resurrection, and just about into his ascension, they are probably still expecting him to restore the political kingdom through an act of military, a political kingdom on earth. They expected him to drive out the oppressive Roman armies. And we know that there were some Jewish opposition to Rome and, and their taxation in general during this time. There was an armed rebellion that took place that we see actually recorded for us in Acts chapter 5. There was a man who led a roamed, uh, an, an armed rebellion against Rome, a man named Thutis, mentioned in Acts 5. And you might recall that the Jews questioned Jesus about the concept of whether or not giving taxes to Caesar was like a moral thing to do. And of course, you might remember what he said, render under Caesar that which is Caesar's. And some Jews did hold a series of tax protests in Jerusalem mostly, but also in Rome. And that might be the reason that Emperor Claudius expelled the Jews from out of Rome for a period of time. So that was the atmosphere then. But the draw to ignite insurrection is a recurring theme in human history. From Korah's rebellion against Moses and Aaron in number 16, to Sheba's rebellion against David in 2 Samuel 20, uh, even some of the radical reformers in the 1500s leading violent revolutions against the government. And I can't even begin to tell you how many cults get started this way. People who talk a lot about the end times and the illegitimacy of the government, and they start communes, and they write manifestos, and they pretend like they are sovereign citizens. They have their own little kingdoms. They're not responsible to earthly authorities. Paul says, get out of here with that mess. That is not how Christians live. You are a citizen of the kingdom of God. Yes, for sure, amen. 
but you're also a citizen of Rome. You have an obligation to submit to the authority of both because God establishes all institutional authority. I know it's growing more and more acceptable over the past decade to say things like, well, that's not my president, or that's not my governor. God's got some words for us this morning. Genuine love is an absolute necessity for the survival of any civilization. What does it say in this passage in Romans 12, just before this? A genuine love blesses those who persecute you. It lives in harmony with others. It doesn't fight fire with fire, but gives thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Genuine love aims at peaceably living with all. Genuine love trusts that God himself will be your avenger. Not being overcome by evil, but overcoming evil with good. As Jesus reminded Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane, his kingdom is not spread at the point of a sword. God is the efficient cause of government because he is the source of all authority. No authority exists except from him. And because that's true, as ultimate authority, he declares then the purpose of government. And we see that in the next verses. Do good and not bad. Governing authorities promote good and punish bad. Verses 3 and 5. Let me read that for us. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. You might know that feeling of driving down the interstate, cruising, maybe not paying attention to how fast you're going, maybe listening to some tunes, maybe some yacht rock. I don't know what you got going on. But then out of the corner of your eye, you see the edge of a state trooper hiding behind a bush. And as soon as you see that, what happens? You pay real close attention to the speedometer, don't you? You want to bring yourself as quickly and yet subtly as possible to an appropriate speed. It's a little fearful. And then you're looking in the rearview mirror. Is he going to pull out? Is he going to chase me? You keep checking to, to, to monitor to see whether or not you're going to be in trouble. But... If you set your cruise control to 65, it doesn't even bother you. You see it, you cruise on by, it's not even a big deal. A simple illustration of this principle in real life. The purpose of governing authorities is to promote what is good and to punish what is bad. And we know this. And we're helped to remember that it's not only Christians who recognize this truth. In Romans chapter 2, Paul says that the work of the law is written on the hearts even of the Gentiles who do not have God's explicit moral law given to them. They don't have God's special revelation, and yet there is still some natural law that they're aware of and accountable to. They have a conscience. Governing authorities are a gift of God, not just to the Christian, but to all of humanity as an act of common grace. Not just special grace to the church, but a common grace to all of humanity. There's a natural law that informs us that some things are inherently bad 
certain crimes that are seen as wrong across human cultures and history. And so the authorities are in place to restrain those who want to do what's bad, to keep everyone from doing what is right in their own eyes, as we saw in the book of Judges. Not only that, they are to approve what is good. And I don't think that means we should expect a thumbs up from a state trooper as we drive by going the speed limit. But it does mean that living as a peaceful citizen is something that is encouraged, not discouraged. Authority should enrich our lives and point us towards what is good. You'll note in verse 4 that the governing authority has been deputized by God to dispense his wrath. He is an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. We saw in chapter 12 that individuals ought not seek vengeance on their own individually, but to leave it to God. And this is one of the ways that God's bringing that justice about in the here and now through the civil magistrates, through those governing authorities. The governing authorities don't have a sword because it looks cool. It's not just in vain, but because there is an actual threat that lies behind it. The sword there is a serious threat of punishment for those who violate civil laws. So, obey the law to avoid God's wrath. But also, he says in verse 5, do it for the sake of conscience. Do it for the sake of conscience. So as Christians, we know that there is a higher reason to submit to God's authorities on earth because we know that God stands behind all authority, that we recognize that they are God's servants for our good. This is something that we know as Christians. Submission to the governing authorities would be much harder if we did not understand that God rules the rulers. If we didn't trust in the providence of God, we might be tempted to lose our minds every election cycle. I'm so glad that doesn't happen. Some have interpreted verse 3 as an escape clause. So they would understand this verse, verse 3, to mean that our obedience to the governing authorities ought to be limited to rulers who approve what God calls good and who have the right motives in every instance. But if we just look at this passage, the reason that we're expressly given to submit is in verse 1. He says, because there is no authority except under God, except from God. So this verse isn't laying out limits to whether or not we should submit. It is describing the purpose, the intention of governing authorities. Paul's writing, of course, to a church that had only recently had some of their brothers and sisters, those Jews within the church, expelled from Rome by the emperor Claudius. And Paul himself had plenty of run-ins with the law. We know this reading the book of Acts or his epistles. It seems like he's either always getting arrested or writing from prison. We know that he has a lot of run-ins with the law. But Paul also leaned into his civil protection as a Roman citizen. The governing authorities saved him from being killed by his fellow countrymen a few times. We see that recorded for us in Acts 21. There's a riot that breaks out. They've accused Paul of uh, rebelling, desecrating the temple. There's a riot. They're beating him to death, and he would have been killed had the Roman commander not stepped in and intervened on his behalf. And in Acts 25, he tells the powers that be, quote, 
I haven't broken the law. If I'm guilty of doing anything deserving death, I do not refuse to die. So Paul, yes, often in trouble with the law, but he was not a revolutionary. He was a law-abiding Roman citizen. There is no such thing as a Christian anarchist. Again, Christians have dual citizenship, if we can speak in those terms. He lays this concept out clearly in the book of Philippians that we're going through in the, on Wednesday nights. Christians are citizens of a heavenly outpost of God's kingdom on earth. Yes and amen. But we recognize the kingdom of God is not yet here in its fullness. And so even there in Philippi, they're still citizens of Philippi too. Just like us, we live between two worlds. So what do we do when governing authorities impose themselves into our submission to God? To keep us from living our whole lives before the face of God as an act of worship, as we're commanded to do in Romans 12, 1 and 2. What do we do with unjust laws? What do we do with unjust rulers? Well, we can look at what happened to Peter in Acts chapter 5. Acts, 20, uh, Acts chapter 5, verses 27 through 29 say this. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, governing authorities. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, and yet you're, you've filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. So here's the exception. When anything is required that is contrary to the law of God, we submit to the higher authority. We obey God rather than man. So, unjust laws may be disobeyed, but the person disobeying must submit to the consequences of that disobedience under the jurisdiction of the governing authorities in the place that they live. Just as civil rights leaders in the 1950s and 60s protested against racial segregation laws rightly and willingly sat in jail as punishment for that civil disobedience. Jeremiah 27, verse, uh, 29, verse 7, Israel was told to pray for the nation that was persecuting them, not calling down fire upon them, but praying for their enemies. And perhaps you remember Daniel refusing to pray to King Darius. And so he willingly goes into the lion's den. His friends, of course, would not bow the knee to Nebuchadnezzar, and they went willingly into the fire. And what did they say? Quote, God can save us, and even if he doesn't, he's still God. That's who we must obey. The civil government bears the sword of steel, to bring about justice while we await Christ's return. And because we live in a world that is still marked by sin, that justice will necessarily be imperfect. So we should do what we can to move the needle towards more just laws out of love of neighbor for the common good. But we also recognize that we cannot expect to usher in perfect justice in this fallen world. Our hope is not here, as Paul reminds us in Philippians. 
our citizenship ultimately is in heaven that will come down when he returns. At that point, he will bring perfect justice. But in the meantime, we trust in his providence and we live as citizens of heaven while we are resident aliens in this world. The final verses here give us some guidance on what that looks like. Point three, support and honor governing authorities. They are God's ministers. Verses six and seven. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. So the governing authorities act as ministers of God. Servants of God. Whether they know it or not. Kind of like King Cyrus did not give Yahweh credit for what he had done, but yet he was still a servant of God. They are an administration of God's authority, and so we must give the government what it is due. There's two words here for taxes, taxes and revenues, different kinds of taxes that are used here. He's saying the authorities dedicate their time to this thing, and so we should pay them rightly for what they've, what they've earned. And of course, there are certain needs that we have, material needs to help us live together as a society for order and harmony. And so we should financially give what is owed. And then there's two words for respecting or actually fearing or honoring. So we financially fulfill our obligations to the government and we give them respect and honor by virtue of their office. Police, Firefighters, judges, presidents, governors. We should not be the kind of Christians who complain and criticize our leaders more than we pray for them. I know that we live in a democratic republic, which is a blessing, but the election cycle never stops now. And so we are inevitably always faced with someone making a case either for or against a political campaign or a person. And 95% of the time, at least, it's a case against someone. There is a culture of criticism. All these commercials just explaining how the person that they're running against is like the worst human you could possibly imagine. It fosters partisanship, it fosters criticism, and it fosters cynicism. And that should not characterize us. And America was born out of revolution. It's in our DNA. And on top of that, we're Protestants. We celebrate Luther's conscientious objection to the Pope every October. And these things are very much a part of our history. And they are worth remembering, and they are worth celebrating. But when we start to value protests and revolution more than obedience and submission, we'll get excited about opportunities to transgress civil authorities rather than seek ways to be obedient until we have no choice to do otherwise. If we recognize that God has a design for governing authorities, we should thank God, as Harry did in our prayer this morning, for all the good that he has done through them. And he has done a lot 
of good through the governing authorities in America. Let's not forget that. We should thank God for the amazing and historically unique opportunities that we have for religious freedom. Christians who are living sacrifices should be model citizens. Pay taxes, obey the law, be respectful, show honor to those in authority, live with a clear conscience by the way that you submit to authority, serve your community for the common good. So we should enter into the opportunities that we have to engage the political process because we do live in a democratic republic. We have opportunities to engage. As citizens of America, that is our responsibility. We have civil leaders actually even here amongst us in our body here, and they should lead their lives and live with biblical values. They should articulate and promote the conviction of what is truly good into that civil arena out of love of neighbor and a desire for the good, for the glory of God. And we should remember that in the final analysis, our ultimate allegiance is to Christ our King, so that when the decision has to be made, we surrender all to Jesus. One preacher says it well, quote, Independence Day for the Christian isn't marked by a flag, but by a cross and an empty tomb. Being confronted by cultural pressures can give us a sense of amnesia that we forget that eternity is real and eternity is long and we shrink our perception down into the here and now. This is precisely what we're told not to do in Romans 2, that Romans 12, verse 2. We forget that God is the ultimate authority. And so we get, we get flustered, we get scared, we get anxious. We think God's not paying attention. This passage reminds us to keep our eyes higher than the horizon of this passing age. Our help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. And so our obedience to governing authorities, if possible, as far as it depends on us, is evidence of our trust in his providence and goodness. I'll be honest, I still have questions about the relationship between the church and state. I knew this was on the schedule, and I was really thinking through this. Romans 13, verses 1 through 7, don't give us a comprehensive guide to the relationship between church and state. And uh, I'll also add that trying to come up with some sort of take that applies in every situation is kind of a fool's errand. There have been so many different takes throughout Christian history on this. There are earnest Christians who disagree about whether or not, for example, the American Revolution was in keeping with the spirit of Romans 13. Does the state control the church? Does the church control the state? Does the state favor the church while the church accommodates to the state? Does the church and state recognize each other as authorities and having their own spheres of authorities, not trying to overstep each other's bounds? We need wisdom and discernment. Uh, particularly because we're experiencing some huge shifts in the civil sphere, huge political earthquakes. But here's what we do know. We should have confidence in God's authority over all things. Let's submit to God's word by submitting to the governing authorities that he's placed over us. We, we anticipate one day 
Men will beat those swords that are used as tools of vengeance into plowshares. We're not there yet. In the meantime, we overcome evil with good. And we should confess that this is not something that we, that we do well in every instance. We recognize that even in that Garden of Eden, when Adam said, not your will but mine be done, you and I, by nature and by choice, follow as children of Adam. And if it were not for Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane, who said, not my will but yours be done, we'd all still be in a heap of trouble. Let's lean into what the Holy Spirit is calling into us to become more and more like Christ and less and less like Adam, trusting in God's providence in and over all things. We recognize that our rebellion against God deserves justice. We know that, and we, act, we actually want it, if not for ourselves, and at least for others. But praise God, here's the good news, guys. God took out that justice against our rebellion already. Paul writes about this in Romans 3. God is just, and he justifies the ungodly in and through the sacrifice of Christ. And by his Holy Spirit, he enables us to trust in God's goodness and his providence in all things. So if you've not done that this morning, if you've not embraced that gospel, I'd be glad to talk to you after the service about it. Or if you just have questions in general, I'd be glad to talk to you about it. In the meantime, let's pray and ask the Holy Spirit to help us to submit to God by submitting to governing authorities.